If you would, please stand with me as we uh, start our Advent together. We're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount today. And we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. These are the words of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray together. Father God, it's uh, a great to be in your presence today on the Lord's Day. We're grateful for the opportunity to worship. We know that this service is not necessarily about us. It's about putting you at the center of all things where you belong and worshiping you in spirit and in truth, especially during this time of year. Um, we know, God, in the culture we live in, that this is a great time to evangelize our neighbors, to bring them the good news that Christ has come and he is coming again, and that there is an opportunity to enter the kingdom. So, God, as we look at this passage today, I pray that we would be convicted where we need to be, that we'd be challenged, that we would grow, and that we would, most importantly, uh, continue to desire by the power, uh, power of your Holy Spirit, continue to desire to obey you and love you. So, uh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We do pray for those who are sick and ill and injured. Um, there are several of those in our church. We pray for healing for them. We ask that the Spirit of God, that the peace of God would transcend all understanding and be given to them, again, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you again for our time together in the Word. I pray, God, that you'd bless it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. So this is uh, the second Advent season during the pandemic. Uh, maybe not something to, uh, to remember and to celebrate, but uh, I remember the last Christmas before the pandemic, uh, 2019, I had the opportunity during that time to read a book on Revelation that cemented in my heart a couple of things. Number one, the future of the church and God's people is reformed, and the future is post-millennial. Uh, we're looking at something called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. And when I say post-millennial, it's talking exactly about what we've been talking about for a long time now, that Jesus' kingdom is now and forever. That is strange for me because it is so optimistic, and I tend to be an optimistic pessimist. Anybody join me in that? Amen. All right. So it, it's strange to me. I grew up more thinking that everything was going to the proverbial hell and the proverbial handbasket, that Jesus was king, but kind of not really involved and kind of out there and not really watching over maybe, or that he would come at some point. In the meantime, we had to white knuckle it until he came. That is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. He does say that Jesus came in a lowly manger and that he came to establish a kingdom that is now and forever. So we can be optimistic about the future, even though it might not seem that way now. Shortly after I read this particular book that cemented these things in my mind, and it was a commentary on the book of Revelation, 
Shortly after that, COVID came to our wonderful corner of the earth, and it seems that these last two years have been anything but optimistic. But that is because I, maybe like you, see the world through finite glasses of my life and my time and my season on this planet, and that really is the hubris of human existence and the reason why books like Ecclesiastes are written. They remind us of the vapor of our lives, and they remind us of the troubles that God sovereignly brings our way for his glory and for our good. One of the, the reminders is this little gem in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you might ask, what does that have to do with the season of Advent? Well, I would say this. It seems there are two approaches by churches during this particular season. One approach is, let's kind of look the other way at what is going on in the world, and let's go about business as usual. A pandemic is here. Let's just kind of ignore it. Let's go on about our business, and let's continue with business as usual. There's a second type of way to approach this season, which I believe is the correct way, especially during what we are experiencing now, and that is this. The future is bright. God is reigning over all, but, in the words of somebody, I looked it up and I couldn't find it, Houston, we have some problems. We have some problems. I've been on a mission for a couple of years in my own personal study and devotional time to understand what God is doing now in light of his promises that his kingdom is now and it is forever. And one of the things that I have learned and I believe is absolutely true is God is purifying his church. God is purifying his church. So that's why you've heard me say that we have an opportunity to evangelize the Christians. And when I say the Christians, I'm talking about those who claim Christ, which we'll talk about here today in this passage, those who are nominally by name only Christian, name of Christ, but yet are not necessarily those who are Jesus' own. So, we have an opportunity this season, and I want to use Advent as that time, to evangelize those who claim Christ but maybe don't know him, as it talks about in the passage we're going to look at today. The other thing that is, uh, Jesus, I believe, is doing during this time is starting a new reformation. And a reformation starts with the church. It doesn't start with your individual moments listening to Caleb in your radio on the way to work. Um, there's another whole sermon series I could do about that. It starts with the church. It starts with a, a need and a present need and a, uh, uh, an understood need of all of us as followers of Christ that there is a great deal of re reforming that needs to be done. That's the word reformation. Reformation means to reform. To reform needs to me, uh, needs, excuse me, means that we need to be reformed back to Christ and back to the gospel. 
There's no creative way to say it. There is no special way to do it. There's a reformation needed to put Christ at the center and his gospel at the center of our existence. So this Advent needs to be a reforming of our hearts back to Christ, back to the centrality of worship around the triune God of Scripture. So we're going to continue and conclude the Sermon on the Mount during this Advent season. And the reason why is this sermon is all about Christ coming to establish his kingdom. It's not about Christ coming to be hippie Jesus, passing out hugs, and kind of giving us some zen to understand how to live life. Jesus is a king. He He humbled himself to come to earth and he was born in a lowly manger, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That means something. It's also about the essential to the bone Christianity. You want to know what being a Christian, a follower of Christ, not a name only, but a true Christian is, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' expose of what it means to be a kingdom citizen, essential to the bone Christian. It is also reformed and post-millennial in its theology. It teaches us that God is at the center, that God saves people, and that the future is bright because Jesus is king And today, it tells us how to enter the kingdom. Now it does it through some contrasts and comparison that I'm going to bring out in this text. But it starts this way, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Merry Christmas. (laughs) This is important. You see, Christmas is not a virtue signaling holy day or holiday. It's not an opportunity for all of us in the culture to say wonderful things, maybe even about Christianity or Christ, or just in general what we consider wonderful things. It's not a virtue signaling day. Uh, You would not know this from watching the commercials, which started shortly after Labor Day this year. And the media that we consume and have is a powerful propaganda artist. It teaches us that as long as we say the right things, we are okay. I beg of you, if you watch much TV, shame on you, shame on me, watch the commercials going on. It's preaching a religion. This is the season where we celebrate the advent of Christ and the religion that is being and everything around us is most certainly not centered on Christ. It is also more insipid, the the way that we virtue signal about this, it's more insipid in that it has a power that can actually make our lazy minds believe that which is not true. So watch those commercials with a critical eye and you will see lie upon lie and a lie upon lie. A lie, by the way, is anything that is antithetical to the truth of God and his word. Thus the need for Jesus to preach the Sermon on the Mount. It is true truth. This holy day is about Jesus. Many around Jesus at the time he delivers this particular sermon are deceived, especially when it comes to how to enter the kingdom. 
Folks, may I suggest to you, life is you need to understand how do I enter the kingdom? And instead of creating the Excel spreadsheet, which is what they were kind of doing in their day, even though they didn't have computers. I don't know how they did spreadsheets back in those days. But they had it all down. They thought this was a particular way. These steps was the way to enter the kingdom. That is the critical question of your existence. How do I enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ? So there is a lot in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 that explain entrance and I would say non-entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And it is there to debunk some of the myths of what it takes that are prevalent in this day, in the day of Jesus. Now, ironically, it's all based in what we now call virtue signaling. It's just the first century Jewish style of virtue signaling. And apparently, it was cool in that day to claim the name of, quote-unquote, Lord, Lord. Just like today, to claim the name is important. Like people want to have a, a, a way to express that they claim the name of the Lord, Lord. If you ask Americans, and there's been many studies done on this, what religion our country is, maybe in prior decades this was more true, not now, but they would say Christian. We're a Christian nation. Now, if you don't fall over laughing when you hear need to understand how Christianity is different than the culture. that would, But they would say culturally that the religion in our country is Christian. I would say that's probably changed. Uh, if you ask them now, they say none. There is no religious necessarily. It's a pluralistic religious uh, uh, society. But now they, they might say that none means this. It's a white supremacist, neo-fascist, racist, sexist, anti-gay Christian. That's what the religion of our country is. Now, really, the true answer should be this. It's a global pagan death cult. That's what the religion of our country is, and that's what the religion of the world is. Um, I could maybe add in there a global, sexually perverse pagan death cult. Um, We'll go into that maybe some other time. I want to make this sermon onto YouTube before they cancel me. Jesus says that saying the name Lord, Lord is not sufficient. That's a scary place to be. When Jesus' name Lord, Lord is not sufficient, I bet you eyes popped open, ears were attentive, because this was something that was critical, especially in a virtue signaling society that claimed the name of the Lord but did not live as they were supposed to live. Jesus says, saying the name Lord, Lord is not sufficient. Why? Simply this. Many people say it, and they, A, don't know what it means. B, they don't want to know what it means, but still want to kind of play it safe. Or, was I doing letters? A, B, three, C. More likely, <clears throat> excuse me, they want to make it only what they want it to mean and not what it actually means. We virtue signal Jesus. Now, how do I know that? Because, and we'll get to this at the end of this particular sermon, when you contrast what Jesus t- 
Christ and you compare it to people who say, Lord, Lord, there is many times a huge difference. That's virtue signaling. So what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to be a follower of Christ? There's a few passages that I wanted to talk to briefly. Um, basically, they're summarized in saying this. Those who do the will of the Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. It says it right here in the passage. Romans 2.13 says this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now we believe that justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, but justification leads to works. We'll talk about that here more in a moment. James 1.22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, the New Testament is rife with examples in Scripture that those who do the will of the Father in heaven are those who enter the kingdom of heaven. These are pretty clear texts. And Jesus just gave you and I in the Sermon on the Mount the word that we are to obey. He says this is what a Christian looks like. This is what you are to be obedient to. And if so, you are being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. You're a doer of the law. And therefore, it shows that you have been justified. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, <clears throat> many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? On what day? What is the day that he's talking about? It's the day of judgment. I believe he's kind of talking about two different judgments. There's a general judgment speaking to all humanity that will face a judgment, but he's also speaking directly to the Jewish people who are facing judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem. And more importantly, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That was a big deal to them. He says that people can prophesy, which literally means to speak inspired utterances. This is kind of the old school form of prophecy where you are forth telling the words of God versus a New Testament understanding of prophecy, which is the pro, uh, proclamation of the already given word of God. But you can prophesy and still not inherit the kingdom. You can cast out demons in the name of Christ. And, by the way, that's the only way to truly do it. You can ask uh, different people who've tried to cast out demons in different names. I think they got their proverbial you-know-what's handed to them. You can cast out demons in the name of Christ. The only way that you can do it. And you still won't inherit the kingdom. You can do many mighty works in Jesus' name, meaning miraculous things. You remember the magician in the book of Acts who wanted the power that the disciples had. And he wanted that power to line his pockets. And some people want power to line their pockets. Some people want the power that, uh, that is being talked about here to be more cool amongst their peers. But Jesus may declare, could declare on that day, depart from me, 
I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So the question is, how do you enter the kingdom? How do you enter the kingdom? This is how you do it. You have to be known by Jesus. It says in here, depart from me, I never knew you. The implication is that for you to be, uh, to have entrance into the kingdom, you have to be known by Jesus. Jesus knows those who are his. Jesus knows those who are his. And it is an elect number of people. I don't know how many. I believe that it eventually will be billions and billions. And many people will be saved and heaven will be full. And the grace of God will be extended and, and people will be saved by Jesus. And they'll be known by Jesus. In John chapter 10, it speaks of Jesus knowing his sheep. Jesus knows his sheep. Now, those who are known by Christ have been converted. Converted. This means, in a theological sense, that you have been made new. There's been a change and an overhaul of your nature and who you are, it has been overhauled by Christ. That's why he calls us, as followers of Christ, a new creation. A similar word needs, uh, needs a little bit more of a description, but those who've been regenerated, meaning you were living in death and now you have been converted to life. You have been converted and regenerated. You've been made new. Those are the people that Jesus knows. Those are his sheep. Those are the ones who are his own. Now this is what's interesting, and this is why I believe the future is reformed. And I don't know what uh, your thoughts are on that word. Uh, I may be amusing it more in the small r sense of understanding how the salvation experience, quote unquote, we love that word in our culture, how that works. And this might be controversial. Actually, throughout all of church history, this was not controversial. Modern day Americans might find this controversial. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself. There is nothing in you that seeks God. That's Romans chapter 3. There is nothing in you that is alive enough that you can synergistically cooperate with God to have your salvation made a reality. Only Jesus can work the miracle in your life to convert you and to regenerate you, and to make you new. Now for me, um, I might have thought pridefully that, well, that kind of hurts my feelings. I should be able to cooperate. There's some good parts of me. I'm athletic. I'm in, you know, good shape. This was younger years. God should, you know, love some things about me that allow me to cooperate with him in being saved. You do not cooperate with God in your salvation. 
you without Christ are rebelling against God. You're rejecting God. And if you think that you bring anything to the table to cooperate with God in your salvation, that is a sign of your pride and a sign of your rebellion. Jesus alone can work the miracle in your life to make you new. And this is the promise. When he makes you new, when you become regenerate, you will be new indeed. You will be changed. Some of us will be changed like slowly, <laughs> stubbornly, being taken out to the woodshed many, many times by the Holy Spirit over and over again to be changed and to show your newness. Some people are radically made new, meaning instantly their hearts are changed and they have a quick and radical desire to follow God, to know his word, and to kill the sin that is making their life miserable. Either way, you're made new. And you will be made new indeed, either by the skin of your teeth, which isn't a direct quote from scripture, but it's kind of close. Or, radically so, and one of those people who has this amazing transformation that is visible to all. But there will be a transformation. So to enter the kingdom, you have to be saved by Jesus. The obedience that you think you are showing to the law without Christ is what Paul calls filthy rags. And we won't get into that because this is the Christmas season. We're trying to be happy. It's not good. A little secret. No one other than Christ can perfectly obey and be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. So some, I've met these folks and they're crazier than the global, sexually perverse, pagan death cult people. They actually are Christians who believe they've attained perfection this side of Jesus taking them home and to glorify them. They're Christians who believe that they're living perfectly. And I just want to call them a liar and see if they'll punch me in the face to prove they're not perfect. <laughs> but Jesus is the only one who perfectly obeys and is a perfect doer of the word and not just a hearer only. So you're commanded to do it, yet Jesus is the only one who can do it. So what are we to do with those things? When God sees a true believer, he sees the obedience of Christ. You are as perfect in obedience and doing of the word because God sees Jesus who has overcome your sin, has forgiven your sin, and has justified you on his own merit and not anything that you do. That's a little secret. Saved people, however, are saved to good works and a loving obedience to their Father. Even though Jesus is your perfection, Jesus is your righteousness, this is the miracle of being saved. You have a desire to follow and obey Jesus Christ. 
There is a growing desire that changes your thoughts, your actions, and the way that you obey Christ, that you desire it. It becomes part of who you are. That is called sanctification, also done alone by the power of Christ. And saved people who are saved to good works and a loving obedience to their Father have the ability to follow through on radical obedience that is impossible without Christ. That's why people that get saved, maybe they get saved at one of the abortion mills where people are doing an evangelistic outreach to them, and they may have had prior abortions, which are the murdering of a little child, and they hear the evangelistic uh, proclamation of people maybe outside one of those mills, and they come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and what do they do? They turn around and start proclaiming to the people that they once were how to be saved, that what they're doing is wrong that the law that Christ has given us is true and it needs to be obeyed but can only be obeyed through the power of Jesus Christ. That's radical. Now, if you are known by Jesus, this is the bottom line and this is probably the message that I want to get across this morning. If you're known by Jesus, you will obey Jesus. And to obey him, you will know what he commands. This is why scripture talks about milk versus solid foods. One of the, is this a rabbit? This will be a rabbit trail. Bear with me. One of the greatest like what is going on moments over the last two years is that Christians in general, instead of repenting and believing and reforming their hearts and their church's hearts to follow hard after Jesus Christ and recognizing that what we're going through now is probably judgment for the wrongs of our church and our culture. Instead of that, they're still milk toast Christians. Not willing to say, you know what, there's a line being drawn here and I need to be on the right side of this line. I need to be with Christ in obedience and in love and not in continual immaturity. We should be growing like oak trees, but rapid oak trees through this time. And instead, we're wilting willows. I... Sorry if I insulted willow trees if they're good trees. We should be growing. We should be growing quickly and deeply. No longer just virtue signalers, but virtue livers. Now, I realize that that's not the organ in your body. Okay? Not that kind of liver. But a person who is living out virtue rather than just signaling it. Living out virtue and the Stoics who were actually pretty smart people in old Greece they thought you could live virtue on your own it's impossible you must be made new you will obey 
what he commands if you're known by Jesus. You'll know what he commands and you will obey what he commands. Regardless of what the masses say, you will obey the one and true God of the universe. It will be simple, it will be joyful, and it will be the kingdom. So let me conclude with this. Don't be the lawless one. That's not good. Verse 23, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What law is he talking about? He's talking about the law of God. The law of God is expressed through the book of Genesis, through Revelation. And Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. There's that uh, uh, that justification that he gives us his righteousness in our place and when God looks at us who are known by Jesus Christ he sees Christ's righteousness the law of God was Jesus came to fulfill it not abolish it so what he says is evil is evil what he says is good is good now how do you know folks you know this is uh, another thing that's kind of crystallized in the past couple years of scripture study. When the book of Romans in particular says that the creation speaks to the existence of God and the imago Dei in every human being, even if they're part of the global sexually perverse pagan death cult, they're made in the image of God. Their conscience knows that there is a God you know. You know what is evil, and you know what is good. Scripture describes those who are lawless. And I wanted to read a couple of these passages. Matthew 10, 33. Those who deny Christ are considered lawless. That is probably the paramount understanding of lawlessness. Denying Christ is lawlessness. It's the definition of it. Matthew chapter 25, excuse me, going back to Matthew 10. Those who nuance Christ for their own gain are denying the one and true Christ. That is lawlessness. Matthew chapter 25 is the passage that speaks about the sheep and the goats. So truth extended to an affectionate concern, what the Bible calls love for others, is a person who will inherit the kingdom, and those who do not have the truth extending to an affectionate concern for others may be goats and may be lawless. Psalm chapter 5. Uh, verse 5, boastful evildoers will not stand before God. They are considered lawless. That would include Satan, the world, the flesh in its pride trying to overthrow God. Jesus came to save lawless people. That's me and you. If you are lawless, if you are pridefully boastfully an evildoer you are one who knows what the law says in your creation or in the creation order and in conscience you know God exists and that there is a law and you are disobeying it you are rebelling against it repent and believe and be saved this advent season be made new and Jesus will work a miracle in your life to make you new Let's take communion today, and we didn't do our confession and pardon with our Advent reading today, but this is a time to confess your sin as a follower of Christ, to show that you are a person that Jesus knows. 
No, Jesus knows. He knows people who are, are contrite in heart. People who repent and believe and will come to this table and celebrate the breaking of God's body for us and taking that body and dipping it into the wine or the juice representing the blood that forgives our sins. Those are people who Jesus knows. Let's pray together. Father, as we celebrate our entrance into the kingdom by remembering your death, burial, and resurrection in communion. I pray that you would continue to make us new. And for those who don't know you as Lord victim of their sin, that they would repent, that they would come to Christ knowing that their good things they do are as filthy rags in comparison to the perfection and beauty of Jesus Christ. They would forsake trying to establish a connection with you through their own works, they would understand that they only need Jesus. And then they would come to this table and they would celebrate, maybe for the first time, uh, communion with you. I pray that this season would be one of evangelistic boldness, of an understanding of what the Advent really means, and that we would celebrate receiving gifts, in feasting together, in singing songs and celebrating the Lord's Day together during this time, all of that would remind us of your greatness and goodness. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.